All right, it's it's uh, it's two o two. We should get started. Welcome, everyone. We have uh, 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 guests registered from far and wide. I'm Michael Sony, and I am the faculty director of the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies, and I am so pleased to welcome all of you uh, and to welcome Scott Kennedy uh, to uh, share his thoughts with us. Uh, Scott is senior advisor and trustee chair in Chinese business and economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, an important think tank in DC. He's a leading authority on Chinese economic policy and its global economic relations. Uh, his work on Chinese industrial policy, technology innovation, business lobbying, and US-China commercial relations has appeared both in academic uh, publications as well as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Foreign Affairs. Before joining CSIS a couple of years ago, Scott was a professor at Indiana University, where he established the Research Center for Chinese Politics and Business. Uh, uh, Scott and I uh, are both um, participants in a wonderful program of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations called the Public Intellectuals Program. And Scott, uh, uh, by moving so fluently, fluidly between the worlds of academe and, and the think tank world is really an exemplary public intellectual on China. He last spoke to us at the Fairbanks Center about two years ago when he gave us a talk on assessing how to assess the uh, patterns of success and failure in China's uh, high-tech innovation drive. Uh, you can see that he's no longer purely an academic because some of that work has already been published from a talk only two years ago uh, in a report called China's Uneven High-Tech Drive Implications for the United States, which I assume, Scott, is available on the CSIS website for, for download. Great. Yes. Um, so he'll be speaking to us today uh, about uh, part of a new stream of work he's doing focused on American responses both to technology and to the larger economic and social challenges presented by China. Uh, we had initially invited him to speak around about five weeks ago on March 23rd, a date I remember because of course it was the very day that uh, the campus shut down and we moved entirely to remote. Uh, I'm very, very glad uh, that he's able to join us now. Uh, before I turn things over to Scott, uh, let me just say that, that the Fairbanks Center, a couple of technical remarks. Uh, the Fairbanks Center is, is uh, working with, with uh, the terrific support of, of some key staff members, um, in particular Mark Grady and Nick Drake. We're, we're moving a lot of our programming online. Uh, please uh, uh, pay attention to what's coming up. We are uh, recording many of our events now and moving those online as quickly as possible, but we've got an exciting program of events coming forward. Um, I will moderate questions at the end. If you would like to submit a question, please use the Q&A tab uh, at the bottom of your screen to submit your questions. Uh, you can submit questions at any time, not only uh, at the end of the remarks. If you would like your question to be anonymous, uh, please use the anonymous submission option. Otherwise, uh, provide your name and affiliation, and I'll use my own judgment uh, as to whether to, to read them. Uh, I know we have viewers tuning in from Asia. I'm going to privilege them because it's getting very late, so they get to ask their questions first uh, and, then, and then go to bed. Um, we have a, a very large audience, over 200 people registered for today's event, uh, so we will not get to all of the questions. I will try to select a range of them. Uh, you may find it useful 
to better see the PowerPoint and see Scott if you switch uh, to speaker rather than gallery view. Uh, that's all I have. Uh, without any further ado, uh, I'll turn things over to Scott. Thank you so much for joining us to share your ideas. Sure. Well, Michael, thank you so much and thank uh, the Fairbank Center, your entire team for, for having me back. Uh, I was looking forward to going to uh, Cambridge uh, in March and I was surprised that you went to such great lengths to keep me from coming to campus <laughs> by putting all of those this uh, together and, and blaming me for all of this. Um, uh, as you know, none of us are traveling anywhere. Uh, I went to China six times last year, eight the year before. The one benefit of this is, is, is no jet lag, uh, but it, it does uh, end the ability to have conversations uh, online with people all over the world. We could do that before, uh, but now we were for, been pressed to do it, and it turns out to be really uh, quite good and helpful. Uh, and I'm looking forward to uh, sharing my ideas with everyone today and getting feedback from everyone who's uh, watching now and may watch um, when this is placed online uh, and going forward. So I really think this is an important conversation uh, that's uh, even made better by it being online. Uh, as you mentioned, um, I uh, was on campus a couple years ago and let's um, make sure I can and um, talked about some of the work that we're doing uh, on high tech uh, and China's innovation drive. This is, we've published uh, seven reports related to uh, Chinese industrial policy and technology uh, and, and uh, uh, have more uh, in the pipeline, done work on, on a few other things as, as well. Um, as, the, as folks who were there in March of 2018 may remember, we had a, a, a couple uh, key conclusions. The first is that China is becoming more and more innovative uh, relative to everyone else in the world. This is China's score using a variety of different innovation indices that are out there, uh, and all of them show uh, China improving. If you put China's rank against others, uh, it's now about 15th uh, in the world, a little bit higher than where it was uh, when I spoke a couple years ago. Uh, the other thing that we did that you, you mentioned is uh, look at the variation across industries. Uh, and when we did that, we found that there are a variety of industries where the Chinese are doing well, uh, which actually helped the rest of the world, uh, what I call win-win outcomes. Some where the Chinese are doing really well, but it's basically harmful uh, or potentially harmful to others, like in electric vehicles. Some places where the Chinese are failing, uh, where that failure isn't that uh, destructive to the rest of us, uh, commercial aircraft, uh, and where they're losing and where that, those efforts are causing problems for everybody, uh, for example, in semiconductors. Uh, what we're doing, we're still writing about these different aspects of, of China's high-tech drive, but what, what I'm trying to do now is think more about American policy and what the U.S. ought to do in response. As everyone knows, uh, there's a conversation going on uh, in Washington all across the country and around the world uh, about our relationship, about the cha challenge from China and what type of policies that we ought to adopt. And over the past couple years, uh, since I visited campus uh, two years ago, uh, the idea of decoupling from China has gained more and more attention and support. Uh, sometimes it's called disengagement uh, or, or, or 
separation or isolation or a variety of different worlds, words. Uh, but most people now talk about decoupling. Uh, Hank Paulson talked about the economic iron curtain uh, in a speech he gave in Singapore in November of 2018. In any case, uh, this idea is now moved to the center of policy debates in Washington and many places. Uh, and we see elements of it being implemented uh, by uh, the Trump administration, and they're encouraging others uh, around the world to join them. Uh, I think this is a radical idea, and it's still, uh, and sometimes radical ideas are good ideas, but I think this is both a radical and a horrible idea. And I want to focus on it because uh, it's gaining so much traction. Uh, and I think the challenge is not just at, at criticizing an idea, but coming up with an alternative. And so I'm gonna both uh, explain why decoupling is so dissatisfying and provide an alternative uh, to it, uh, and then look at a few areas uh, to to, uh, where they would be differently applied. Uh, and hopefully we'll do all of that uh, in the next uh, 20 minutes. Uh, and if I don't, Michael, you're uh, uh, totally within your rights to come in and stop me uh, and uh, move us to conversation, which I'm really looking forward to. So the first thing to point out uh, about this idea uh, and why I don't like it uh, is that it's a Chinese idea. Uh, this is not an idea or a term that was invented in the United States. It was invented in China. Uh, and then it was exported to the United States. Now, China has lots of great ideas. Uh, Michael and other historians uh, have found lots of great Chinese ideas over the years. But this is a bad Chinese idea. And, and it comes out of uh, Chinese nationalist uh, discourse. Uh, and it's uh, been developing for uh, the last 20 years or so. So you can see uh, Chinese media and academic use of the term, uh, the term uh, decoupling in Chinese is tuogou. Uh, we did a search of zhongmei tuogou because there's a whole, the, the term can be used in a variety of different ways. And you can see how it's increased its usage in China going back a, a long ways. Now, originally it was used uh, not because of wanting to decouple from the United States entirely, but they're worried about the global financial crisis, the dependence on the U.S. dollar. And so Chinese talked about the need to decouple from the U.S. Uh, currency. And then Chinese started talking about the need to decouple from the American uh, high-tech innovation system and engage in indigenous innovation. And then over the last few years, since 2015, increased talk about decoupling entirely from the United States. Well, you can see that if we just zoom in on the last uh, two years, uh, that the Chinese have uh, increased their usage. And the discussion within China about decoupling has risen and fallen as the U.S.-China trade tensions have risen and fallen. Uh, when the U.S. has put on tariffs or attacked Huawei or ZTE, you've seen the discussion in China rise quite a bit. It's declined a little bit over the last few months uh, during this year as a result of uh, the epidemic. But nevertheless, China has led the discussion on the idea of decoupling, not the United States. But the US has followed up uh, and imported this idea. You can see that, again, uh, the 
discussion about U.S.-China decoupling uh, lagged behind China uh, for many, many years uh, and really didn't get adopted uh, in any significant way uh, until uh, 2018, uh, until the U.S. and China started really getting into disputes about uh, technology. It first arose after the U.S. and China uh, were having a confrontation over the Chinese telecom company ZTE. And then last year in May of 2019, when the U.S. and China got in further conflict, when the trade talks broke down and the U.S. decided to adopt uh, significant sanctions against Huawei, putting it on entities list and banning American telecom companies from buying Huawei equipment. And so the U.S. has been following. And what's happened are Chinese nationalists developed this idea, and then American nationalists have uh, glommed onto it as well. And so I think it's important to note that this term originally was not developed in the United States. It started in China. Um, You can also see the development in in the media and how um, use in the American media, again, has followed uh, and then surpassed, again, the transfer from uh, China to uh, the United States. The second reason I really don't like this idea of decoupling uh, is because it is very vague and it includes actually four kinds of ways in which the United States and China might be disconnected from each other. The first way is, is the possibility that what you would do is you separate the two economies and societies and try and isolate China. In fact, isolate China from the rest of the world. It's one possibility. Another would be bifurcating the world. China would have its friends, the US would have theirs, and you'd have basically two big camps. These are the ways in which advocates of decoupling typically talk about it, but in fact, the chances of those two things occurring are really, really low. The idea that China is gonna be isolated from the rest of the world is laughable. It ain't gonna happen. Uh, In some instances, maybe it'll collaborate more with authoritarian countries. Uh, but for the most part, China's got is the largest trading and investment partner of most countries in the world, and they aren't going to put up pull up stakes. Or and so you're also not going to get a bifurcated world either. Much more likely, a policy of decoupling and disconnecting from China would lead to either a very fragmented world, where there's a lot less trade and interaction across the planet, deglobalization in, in, is another way to put it, or an isolated United States where the rest of the world continues to interact extensively with each other, but it's the U.S. which has pulled up the drawbridge and uh, has, has few friends uh, instead of making America great again, making America alone again. So that would be, so I think it's important to understand that when we're talking about decoupling, uh, it's such a vague idea and you really have to get your, you really have to break it down and look at the, the real type of possibilities uh, that could emerge. And most of the ones that could emerge uh, are either unlikely in the event of the advocates or uh, very bad outcomes for the United States. In addition to that, an effort to decouple the United States from China wouldn't only probably separate the U.S. from much of the rest of the world, it would decouple Washington from the rest of the United States because the rest of the United States is not ready to decouple from China. And so uh, if you look uh, particularly at business, uh, businesses 
are concerned about China, uh, but for the most part, uh, they are staying put. Here's a recent survey from uh, the American Chamber of Commerce in China uh, that was conducted uh, late last year. And it shows that the vast majority of American companies who are in China don't plan to leave. And in fact, that number has been growing over the last few years, not shrinking. Um, and even with, and, and, and that is because even though there have been risks as a result of the tariff war, the potential tech war, uh, that China is still a big market. It's still a very good place to do manufacturing. Uh, and most companies, the vast majority of American companies in China are there for the China market. And so some may be replicating their supply chains, moving some of their uh, manufacturing that's meant for the rest of the world out of China, but for the vast majority are staying put because they are producing and innovating for the Chinese market. A similar survey uh, by AmCham was conducted uh, last month and uh, a smaller number of companies responded, but only 4% of them um, said that they would be, that they are considering relocating some or all of their manufacturing outside China as a result of the pandemic. Again, even uh, in current circumstances, the idea of American companies pulling up uh, and, and heading for the exits in China are, is, is not likely. Surveys of companies from the United Kingdom, Japan, and elsewhere show similar patterns of results. In fact, even less likely to leave China. So the possibility of Washington being decoupled from the rest of the United States and the US from uh, its other trading partners is, is quite possible. Another reason I don't like this idea of decoupling is that it's built on a false equation. Uh, its logic is wrong. The idea of decoupling is based on the concern that increased interdependence in and of itself, it provides a greater harm to the US economy, national security, values, and public health. Now that's certainly possible, uh, but not guaranteed. But decouplers believe that the way to fix this problem is to reduce interdependence. And by reducing interdependence, you protect the American economy, national security values, and public health. I am concerned about interdependence. And there's been a lot of writing by academics about interdependence lately and the risks uh, that it generates and the vulnerabilities that it creates, particularly when two countries uh, have fundamental differences. But there's also uh, an understanding that there are benefits from interdependence and there are ways to manage those vulnerabilities and risks. My idea is that instead of thinking about the need to decouple from China, uh, that we practice a policy of what I call principled interdependence. I call it that because, uh, interdependence because I think interdependence brings a lot of benefits to the United States, to its economy, to national security, to our, uh, for our values, uh, for many things, but uh, it's not guaranteed. Uh, and so you need to marry that idea of interdependence with some principles that raise the likelihood that those goals will be achieved and that the risks that come along with interdependence will be effectively managed, if at all possible. 
So the, the four steps that I propose in pursuing a policy of principled interdependence include first, recognizing the benefits that come from interdependence, identifying the risks that come from it, mitigating those risks, and then addressing other problems that may come up for our society that are causing problems, but in which people end up blaming interdependence as the source of those problems. Um, and so those other types of issues include things like uh, poor democratic governance, reduced government capacity, uh, the weakening of the middle class, things like that, uh, which then gets blamed on interdependence. So let me walk through very briefly a little bit more about what I mean. Now, I think it's probably uh, not going to be hard to convince uh, folks watching a Harvard Fairbanks Center event that interdependence is good for the American economy, uh, for uh, lots of other things. But you still may be wondering if it's good for American national security. And I want to explain that I think uh, that it is. And, and here are five reasons why. Sorry that there's so much text here. But a positive sum economic relationship gives both sides a stake in maintaining that relationship. It raises the cost to China of challenging the United States and the system that we've built and engaging in open conflict. Doesn't mean they won't do those things, but it raises the cost. Secondly, having Chinese in American innovation and supply chains means that the Chinese are using American technology in their products. That means the U.S. is still providing leadership in those technologies. The Chinese are dependent on those technologies. And in addition, even though the Chinese might be able to look into our uh, supply chains or use back doors, those doors swing in both directions. And it also gives a chance for the United States to understand where China is technologically and to go and to uh, peer into uh, Chinese systems. Third, uh, in, interdependence strengthens America's science and technology foundations and industrial base development. If you've got a monster market that you're exporting to, if you're collaborating on the building of and innovating of products using the best minds, that helps American science and technology. And many of those uh, innovations find their way into the American military, the intelligence community, strengthen our economy overall, which is good for our national security. Interdependence supports deep learning in both directions. The Chinese get to learn about the United States and our values and our system, and we get to learn a lot about China. I gotta tell you that if I hadn't started going to China 30 plus years ago, uh, go there regularly, I'd know zip about China. And if we didn't have uh, Chinese students and workers in the United States uh, helping me, uh, working with us, I'd be blind. Uh, I would have almost no understanding and, about China. And if you can't understand uh, your friends and foes, you're in a much weaker position. In addition, this interaction creates groups of people who are able to communicate with each other, even in times of great stress and helps us better able to manage and reduce crises. Finally, interdependence helps national security by providing the chance to cooperate on non-traditional security issues, and that can then, in turn, reduce tensions in other areas and stabilize great power 
competition. So yes, there are vulnerabilities and weaknesses that come from interdependence, but there are also real strengths and benefits to American national security. So how do we implement principled interdependence? And I've just got a few more minutes uh, for my presentation and then look forward to the conversation. First of all, there's, I guess it's three steps. The first is to set those standards of interaction that we want to support. What are the things that we really value as a country that we want? We want an inclusive, resilient, sustainable economy. We want comprehensive national security that protects not just our military assets, but our country as a whole. Um, we want a st strong public health uh, sector, uh, and we want to protect our democratic values. So we need to set standards in our relationship with China that try to achieve those goals. Secondly, we need to design systems to promote those standards and mitigate the risks that would undercut those standards. If you look to the right, I've put a whole list of risk mitigation strategies that are common around the world in a whole bunch of different settings. Uh, I spent a lot of time, as folks who were at the talk a couple years ago know, looking at the uh, commercial aircraft sector. And that sector has a whole bunch of risk mitigation strategies to keep planes uh, from crashing. And despite uh, a couple recent accidents, which are really tragic, for the most part, airline safety is really extremely high. And so some of these come from the air, airline sector, some of them come from elsewhere. But if you think about uh, uh, building in redundancies, overlapping systems, having multiple people check things, having widely distributed assets, diverse and dispersed sources of supply, having transparency of information, having consensus building in decision making, fiscal and financial prudence, multiple accountability mechanisms, and then testing, auditing, and reform built in to your interdependence and re these relationships. These are all ways to mitigate risks. Finally, you need to build these uh, mit mit risk mitigation systems into the ways that government business and the nonprofit sector carry out their relationship with China. So to me, this is a strategy for continuing the relationship with China to promote these uh, standards uh, and protect the U.S. economy, national security, uh, public health, and our values. This is a conditional proposal of interdependent. It, it is not automatic. It is not unconditional. And that dif differentiates my proposal from advocates of uh, long-term engagement over the years. If we can't mitigate these risks, then we shouldn't have engagement with China. Then we should pull up the stakes and we should reduce our connectivity. So it's really important that to folks that understand that I'm advocating interdependence, but principled. And if it can't be achieved, then we need to do something else. Let me briefly talk about three uh, areas where this would apply. The first is research collaboration. Uh, I think many folks have heard of, the, of China's Thousand Talents program. Uh, the Chinese started this program uh, as a way to reverse the brain drain of having so many Chinese study and work abroad and never go back to China and share that knowledge inside China. This program started in 2008, uh, led by a Chinese Politburo member Li Yuan Chao. And since then, about 7,000 Chinese have participated in the program. 
And um, originally, this and this program has created uh, a lot of friction. Uh, and the U.S. government has pushed back very hard on the Thousand Talents program. The Justice Department in 2018 started its China initiative, in large part to uh, attack the Thousand Talents program and Chinese efforts to obtain American technology, often through illicit means. The National Institutes of Health has been central to this conflict because there are a lot of recipients of NIH funding who are also Thousand Talents program participants. The Thousand Talents program is particularly controversial because it originally started as an effort to have, a, have Chinese move entirely from the United States and other countries back to China, uh, be full-time employees in China, have labs and do research there. But that didn't work out too well. So the Chinese started, they created a part-time program and about 75% of the participants are part-timers. They participate, uh, they still have their full-time positions in the United States and elsewhere around the world. And then they uh, work also in China. And sometimes they work in China illicitly without informing their uh, original universities and organizations where they're employed. Sometimes they take technology and knowledge from their original projects. And sometimes they engage in double dipping and they get research funding from multiple organizations in the West and China at the same time without informing folks in the West. Uh, and this uh, undercuts uh, uh, the research uh, community um, uh, and hurts the overall uh, efforts of the type of research uh, that we want across fields. So this is a real significant challenge. The advocates of decoupling would say, no more money to Chinese. Let's reduce the ability of Chinese to study and do research in the United States, radically reduce the number of H-1B visas. I even heard recently the proposal uh, from Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas that Chinese who study in the United States should, who want, uh, should only be allowed to study social sciences and the humanities, not science and technology topics. Uh, these are crazy ideas. Now I understand the, re the reasons that they've been promoted because of the risks that people see, but there are much better ways to manage these risks and still protect our uh, research systems are the way that we develop knowledge, which is beneficial for us and the world in a whole host of ways. So we can build in uh, risk mitigation into our research collaboration. For example, NIH, which hands out money around the world, spends almost no time really digging into the applications that come its way. They know very little about the different applicants other than what they put in their applications. Uh, they basically accept everything at face value. Um, there's almost no post-grant audits of NIH grants. Uh, a lot more could be done by NIH at the beginning, at the end. In addition, the universities and research organizations that participate and receive NIH funding could take a lot more responsibility on themselves to understand the scholars who are applying and using these funds. And so we could also not only, we could also make universities and research organizations themselves responsible uh, throughout this process. And we could involve uh, universities and research organizations in China to take responsibility and use a 
green card, yellow card, or red card system that would block not only the individuals who would abuse these funds, but the institutions that don't provide adequate oversight to those who are under their purview. So I think there's ways with, to continue to protect research collaboration that's transnational, but it's gonna require much stronger risk mitigation systems to do so. Let me say a little bit about pandemics, and I'll just say just a little, because I think this is something that everybody gets. Uh, we're, uh, we've seen a lot of discussion in the media and in Washington about American overdependence on China for medical equipment and supplies, including masks, uh, PPE, uh, uh, pharmaceuticals, ingredients that go into, into drugs, and the idea that you have to bring all this home and produce it in the United States. Well, that sounds like a great idea, but it's extremely risky and extremely expensive. Uh, and there's many ways to have uh, sufficient supply for all of these things without having to produce it all in the United States. It requires much greater care and attention uh, and diversification of supply chains, but it doesn't mean having them only in the United production only in the United States. And so there's a lot that can be done in that direction to help us. In addition, you have to also address other weaknesses. The US emergency preparedness for pandemics has really dropped considerably over the last few years. And if the US had been sufficiently prepared all along, uh, we wouldn't be facing as nearly a larger crisis as we are right now. So part of this is about addressing the risks from interdependence. Part of it is about addressing other issues like emergency preparedness. Lastly, let me just say something about semiconductors because that's an industry which in 2015 is what originally touched off the big scare in Washington and elsewhere about China's high-tech drive and the need to, to protect the United States high-tech sector from China's uh, dramatic rise. And that's really the start of the concern about Huawei and 5G and everything else. It all goes back to semiconductors. Well, today, uh, I finished taking a poll uh, asking Americans uh, and others who are on Twitter about American policy. The U.S. government is currently considering adopting a rule that would cut off Chinese telecom firm Huawei from cutting-edge semiconductors that are used in 5G that are made in Taiwan but use American manufacturing equipment. Now, China is likely to retaliate against U.S. firms as a result. So... Should the U.S. go forward or not? The Trump administration seems to be prepared to go forward with this. And this follows on other steps that I mentioned that they took last year against Huawei and other efforts that they are taking to re restrict exports to China uh, that came out earlier uh, this week. So, yes, I understand the idea that we ought to be careful about our technology and protect it, but we ought to recognize that simply pulling up the drawbridge won't necessarily protect American national security the way advocates of these policies seem to think. The Boston Consulting Group um, recently published a study uh, in which they analyzed what uh, the American semiconductor industry's strengths are relative to others in the world and what would happen if the U.S. and China had a high-tech decoupling. 
first of all, this figure from the report shows that the U.S. is currently the global leader in semiconductors. It has 48% of the global market, and in some industries, it's extremely high for personal computers, IT infrastructure, and defense and aerospace, and others, the U.S. really is ranked number one. Um, and it has that leadership uh, in part because not only have we invested in the United States at home, but the semiconductor uh, industry has developed complex supply chains and partnerships around the world. If you think it's complicated how a, a t-shirt is made uh, or how an iPhone is made, I got to tell you the complexity of the way a semiconductor chip is made and the diversity of participants is unbelievable. Uh, and it didn't get that way by accident. Should the U.S. change its policies and radically change the way in which uh, the industry is structured and fully decouple from the United, from China, Boston Consulting Group's math suggests that the U.S. would go from having 48% of the global market share in chips to 30% of the global market share in chips. Some of that would go to China. Some of it would go to South Korea, Japan, and others. Now, semiconductor leadership is critically important, not only for uh, American, for civilian products, but are widely used in the U.S. military and intelligence community. And if the U.S. loses leadership in semiconductors, it is going to lose uh, the ability to promote the continued advancements of our military objectives and preparedness. And so there are other ways through uh, targeted types of export controls through things that companies can do on their own to make sure that the U.S. protects its IP, its manufacturing processes, and continues to nurture this sector in a way that doesn't harm American national security. So I think a, an approach of principled interdependence to semiconductors would be way more effective than outright uh, decoupling. So uh, let me end there. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, look forward to uh, your feedback uh, in the uh, discussion now. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks very much. Uh, Scott, you can hear me? Yes, I can. Great. Uh, Mark, I'm my capacity to start my video has been stopped by you. So I'll just be a disembodied voice unless you want to let me come back in. Um, Scott, thank you, uh, thank you so much for a, uh, a, a really stimulating and, and thoughtful presentation, what we've come to expect from you, uh, both virtually in person and, and from your written work. Um, one thing I can't help but say right off the bat is that, is that whether your proposals come to fruition or not, the idea that American universities are going to need to be a little bit more responsible for how they monitor collaboration in research and exchange with with Chinese colleagues. Um, that's that's a uh, that's already a at least what that's 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 going to be part of the new ecology that we're we're working in, whatever our relationship is with China. Um, one of the things I really I the, the strongest impressions I take from the presentation is. Uh, that it um, diverges from the usual debates on decoupling, which are typically um, decoupling supporters, and then so people who favor decoupling, and then people who, who defend the status quo by arguing that decoupling is either impossible or too costly. Um, and so I, I, I think it's very useful to, to frame the conversation in a different way in terms of the 
um, positive benefits of principled, principled interdependence rather than simply uh, opposing decoupling because it's not, it's not realistic. Um, we've got a couple of questions coming in, but let me start with one really tough. I have a couple of questions. I'm going to start with a really tough one, and then we'll and then we'll come back to it. I look at I look at principled interdependence in practice, and it seems intuitively very appealing. But then I look at it more closely, and it looks to me a little bit like engagement with conditionality and risk mitigation. Well, engagement was always conditional. Right, so there's there's nothing there's nothing new about our, making it explicitly conditional. Well, I, I suppose what you're proposing is to make it explicitly conditional in a way that it's always been implicitly conditional. Then the other new element of the of the proposal is is uh, the principle, uh, the risk the risk mitigation element, um, and there I wonder if you could say a few things about uh, the challenge of. Um, a sort of armed arms race of mitigation strategies and Chinese responses, right? It, where where every risk mitigation strategy that is applied uh, is met with a response that creates new risks. Um, that to me, I think, is probably the central challenge of actually making principled independence happen. I wonder if you could say a couple of words about about how you might respond to that challenge. Sure, sure. Thanks, Michael. Those are I really appreciate that feedback, um, and I think you really understand what I'm trying to propose. And, and these are very constructive uh, ideas uh, that I need to flesh out, think about, uh, and explain to folks, um, and also think more about, and, and ref ref hopefully it's about refining this idea as opposed to junking it. But I don't, th I, first, I, I, it's, I think it's more than explicitly making the relationship conditional, uh, because in, practice, the U.S. has essentially said that we're going to practice patient integration with China, that yes, the Chinese do stuff that we don't like, we, but we will use uh, kid gloves very carefully to punish specific things like anti-dumping cases or countervailing duty, but we're not going to pull up the drawbridge. Uh, we will essentially expect that the benefits of the relationship so outweigh the, the risks that we're even willing to accept a lot of those things. We're willing to accept IP theft. We're willing to accept lots of things, uh, China getting stronger, China having a greater role in the South China Sea, et cetera. Uh, and what I'm saying is that actually you may end up needing to say, no, we're, we're just not going to allow Chinese investment in the United States. Right. Um, if, for example, just going back to the Thousand Talents program, I think uh, we have got a paper. We've got a paper coming out next week, written by David Zweig, um, and he's got a proposal I think is very uh, sensible. Thousand Talents program uh, is totally under the radar in China. You used to be able to get a list of everyone who participated. Uh, now they've hid that now for several years. I guess my view would be if the Chinese don't publish who's participant and aren't transparent themselves about it, then there shouldn't be any possibility of money going to someone who uh, we end up finding who's in the Thousand Talents program. And we might want to further restrict lots of, of, of research collaborations as a result of that. So it, I do think that the conditionality is not just explicit 
Now, it's, I think there needs to be real teeth behind it. The second is, do we, your question is, do we get um, a tit for tat and this basically unwinds in a, in, in a way that's unacceptable and we, we basically get the decoupling anyway, no matter what our intention is. And I do think that is possible, particularly with a nationalist government like China's that also is very skeptical about interdependence and sees the vulnerabilities as oftentimes outweighing the risks. The Chinese now are talking a lot about de-Americanization. But um, I think if the Chinese understand what our motives are, what our approach is, and that we're consistent, um, and that they're much more likely to see these as constructive ways. It still may carry American values, which a lot of the Chinese won't like, but they are less likely to uh, retaliate tit for tat and just go through that arms race that you're uh, suggesting. So, um, but I do realize it's a real problem uh, that we have to, to look into and be worried about. Thank, thanks very much. I actually, I actually meant something slightly different by the, the arms race. What I meant is, um, uh, I want to move on to other questions, but let me, let me just say, say what I had in mind and we can maybe come back to it, which is the idea that for every attempt to mitigate a risk, um, uh, the counterparty will, will look for ways to accomplish its objectives that, that don't butt up against those risk mitigation strategies, um, but nonetheless intensify risk. Uh, but let's leave that for now because we've got we've got we've got a bunch of questions. So um, thank you for the questions that are coming in. One of the advantages, of course, of coming in with written questions is that I can actually see all of the questions uh, and and try to impose some order. Um, so we've got a, so this is mostly to the questioners. If I'm not asking your question right away, here's why. We've got a couple of questions actually about decoupling, and I thought maybe we'd start with those and then turn to. The, 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 pr the proposal, if that's okay. So don't sure. be discouraged that the first couple of questions are about decoupling. So the first one um, is, is uh, uh, a question that's on a lot of our minds as we work on our public enga our engagement with the US public. Uh, from an anonymous attendee, interdependence with China is blamed for the destruction of the US middle class. What's your argument for why this is a fallacy? Great question. Um, the, uh, I guess it goes back to, to two of the elements uh, that I uh, touched on before, the part of the principled interdependence process. The first is, is really looking what the risks are and, and evaluating them. And certainly, uh, the, I think the dominant, most common argument we hear is, is that uh, following China's entry into the WTO, um, there was a big shift in investment toward China. It led to outsourcing the movement of a lot of American factories to China, which uh, wreaked, wreaked havoc on American manufacturing, uh, led to uh, the loss of several million jobs. I think the uh, data for that um, is, is debatable. There's a, 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 some folks uh, who agree I think what it says, I think what that data says, if you take it to its, uh, if, if you really look at it closely, it says about 2 million jobs were lost in the United States to China in the shifting of that. Now that's certainly true uh, or, or likely true, but at the same time, on balance, a lot more jobs were created in other industries or in the same industries, but with higher value add in different segments of them. So on net, 
Uh, I think there were more jobs create have been created, higher paying jobs. Certainly, uh, um, not everyone has been a winner and certainly a lot of losers as well. But on net, I think it's been a benefit to the U.S. economy. This goes to the last point that I made is, is, is dealing with other challenges. A lot of the challenges from the American working class and, and including in global, with regard to globalization uh, is that very, uh, far too little uh, worker retraining programs. Uh, we have a healthcare system, which is based on your job. So as soon as you lose your job, you lose your healthcare. Uh, we have a relatively regressive tax code system, uh, which has shifted wealth uh, from uh, the middle class uh, to others. Um, and so we have a whole variety of ways in which the middle class has suffered considerably over the last 40 years. And, but to put all of that blame on globalization in China, I think, is, is a mistake. And so I'm not saying that there have been weaknesses, but I think on balance it's been beneficial. And there's ways in which we can mitigate the risks of globalization, our relationship with China, and address those other things at the same time. Thanks, Scott. Uh, I think probably one of the things that would have been surprising to many people in our audience was your observation that decoupling is actually a Chinese idea. Uh, Anastas Vangeli uh, asks, is the rationale of Chinese proponents of decoupling rooted solely in emotions, or is there some more elaborate argument for how it benefits China? The um, way that Chinese have thought about this um, I, I should say that the original time, originally in the 1990s, when the Chinese started talking about Tuogu and public policy was uh, uh, with regard to climate change and, and, and saying that you need to uh, decouple economic development from carbon emissions. Uh, and then it was applied, been applied to the United States. Their logic uh, is the same nationalist logic that we see of critics of interdependence everywhere. It is really not uniquely Chinese. Uh, you can look at Chinese realist thought like Ian Johnston and others have done over the years, and it's really quite similar. Uh, this is why the Chinese have promoted the idea of indigenous innovation or self-reliance, uh, fears of interdependence of vulnerabilities uh, because of relationships elsewhere. What it suggests is that they see those relationships as zero sum, introducing vulnerabilities, loss of control, that they want to gain back by uh, having much more of the production and knowledge from their own country. I don't think that that's really different. I just think it's wrong. Uh, and, and so I, I think uh, it's interesting to watch these parallel conversations and how they move around the world uh, and affect each other. And what, I think what we're just seeing is this sort of global discourse moving around from place to place. Yes, there are some uniquenesses, uh, but I'm, I'm struck more by the similarities in the way the Chinese conversation is occurring as opposed to the difference. Thank you. One last question, if you don't mind, on decoupling, and then we'll move to principled interdependence. John McHugh asks... Who are decoupling's most influential proponents within the U.S. government? Are they primarily Trump political appointees or allies? Or has this debate, this position, been embraced by the bureaucracy as well? Oh, it's, it's hard, hard to say. Certainly, uh, I, the, I think the president has often been concerned about dependencies abroad. You know, originally... Uh, 
long before he became president, he was worried about the trading relationship with Japan. And he's always been, a con been concerned about bilateral trade deficits. It's sort of his metric of winning or losing. But you can see in his discussion and his worries about immigration and other issues that he sees lots of vulnerabilities to the United States from being deeply interconnected with uh, the rest of the world. Um, but um, I don't know if I would call him the chief advocate of, of this. Uh, certainly, I think most folks here know of uh, Peter Navarro, former professor at University of Cal California, Irvine, who uh, doesn't say that he's an advocate of decoupling, but just about everything that he says translates into those type of policies. Uh, his basic view seems to be that you can't mitigate these type of risks, that China's state capitalist mercantilist system is so disadvantageous to the United States that you have to push American investment out of China, bring it home to the US, that the dependence on China for medical equipment, pharmaceuticals creates too many risks for the United States. I think you also see folks, uh, some within the Department of Commerce, uh, Bureau of Industry and Security, uh, some political appointees within uh, the Pentagon. But I'd say uh, this is not, there is no consensus on this in the US government at all. Certainly there are those who are really worried and hawkish about China, but most of the, for most of the last 40 years, the hawks and uh, on China have said what we really need to do is deter the Chinese, build huge risk mitigation systems like export controls and investment restrictions, but still keep the relationship going. So the, the, the ha most hawkish position is the new one that suggests decoupling and the old hawkish position is really closer to what I'm suggesting of principled interdependence. Okay, so let's let's actually now move from from the argument your the, the position that you're arguing against towards the position that you're ag you're advocating. Uh, Jason Chan from the University of Cambridge writes: uh, Your principled interdependence is well founded to govern direct Sino-American collaboration. However, speaking from Hong Kong's perspective, I wonder how principled interdependence could manage the risks of Chinese S&T espionage through proxy companies registered in Hong Kong, essentially utilizing Hong Kong's role in relations with the US uh, to circumvent any stricter, any stricter regulations on collaboration with, with PRC, for mainland Chinese firms, as opposed to Hong Kong firms. Sure. That's a really great question. And I think the uh, how things like this are implemented are gonna be uh, where we decide whether this is gonna be helpful to maintaining interdependence or whether it's actually decoupling by other means. Um, and, I th and so the devils are in the details. Uh, to some extent, what the US needs to do is develop its own, uh, further elaborate its own rules regarding export controls and investment restrictions. But it needs to actually also go beyond what it does domestically and, and develop multilateral rules. Uh, there have been efforts to work with the EU and Japan on some of these investment restrictions and export controls, which now vary widely. Um, but the US can, if it wants to, lead an effort through the WTO, APEC, TPP, or some other types of institution to build these kinds of rules. Um, 
Now, Hong Kong is in a difficult position because it's part of China, but according to the uh, b basic law uh, and Chinese commitments of one country, two systems, it's uh, supposed to maintain its economic system uh, until 2047. If China respects the basic law and that commitment, then it creates more opportunity for firms in Hong Kong, scholars in Hong Kong, researchers in Hong Kong, to continue to be able to more easily maintain connectivity with the US and others who accept these principles than if the basic law in one country, two systems gives way to one country, one system. So part of this is gonna be about the rules that the US develops domestically, multilaterally, that firms develop. It's also gonna depend to some extent on what China does. If one country, two systems really gives way to one country, one system in all but name, it's gonna be really difficult for companies and, and stakeholders in Hong Kong to participate in a, an approach of one country of principled interdependence. So um, exactly how it's gonna be done, I, I can't say for sure, but that's sort of the basic idea. Uh, that segues nicely to a related question from uh, that comes to us from Nori Shikata, a fellow in the U.S.-Japan program at the Weatherhead Center here at Harvard. Um, it's a two-part question, and you've and you've really answered the first part already. So maybe focus on the second. Does your idea of principled interdependence include setting new international trade and investment standards across the Asia Pacific by a U.S. return to TPP or CPTPP after 2021? Uh, could that be implemented? under the concept of the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy? Ah, the um, Trump administration has a whole variety of pol policies uh, that apply towards uh, Asia that um, aren't deeply integrated with each other. The national security strategy, national defense strategies that came out in 20. 18 and 2017 talk about uh, our relationship with the region in a way that sounds a lot like principled interdependence. But if you look at the actual policies that the administration has pursued on trade, for example, um, that doesn't really, to me, look like principled interdependence. Uh, it looks much more like unilateral list pressure as opposed to collaborating with others in the region to develop common principles that defend the norms of free and open trade. Um, the phase one agreement that was just uh, that was signed in January essentially is a managed trade deal. It's not about open trade. Uh, there's nothing in that deal which which really pushes China to liberalize its economy. And so I think the concept of the free and open Indo-Pacific is a great idea. Um, but uh, it has to be married with policies which really try and fulfill those possibilities. I think the free and open Indo-Pacific is really originally sort of two things. One is about changing the structure, geography of the region, right? And then part of it is about pursuing these norms. Whether or not you want to change the geography of the region so that you essentially put South Asia into East Asia, et cetera, um, that's one question. I think people will be debating that for a long time. Um, the other, again, is about these principles, and I think it depends how, how they're implemented. Um, you now, if the Trump administration has a second term, they're obviously going to continue with the free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, but they'll still face that tension between some policies that look like they're promoting something that might be look like 
sound like principled interdependence and something that actually looks like decoupling. Uh, if you have a different U.S. government starting in January of 2021, I think the possible, you know, the possibilities are endless in how they're going to define what the region's geography looks like and the the norms and language and policies that would accompany those the, uh, what they do in the region. Uh, let me just follow up on that with a, with a quick question that goes back to decoupling. You mentioned a different administration after 2021. An anonymous attendee asks, will decoupling be taken seriously on the U.S. side uh, if uh, Trump is no longer the president? Uh, you know, I, I don't think that it would, you know, we'll have to see uh, what, would, what would happen. Just looking at the, the previous record of, of Vice President Biden when he was in the Senate, when he served in the Obama administration, uh, speeches that he's given, he sounds like an internationalist, someone who's comfortable with interdependence, but also is trying to you know, make sure he protect American national security. At least that's his frame. Um, at the same time, I think people are really worried about uh, the ideological challenge from China, the China model, both as an economic idea, as an intellectual, as a political idea, as a political enterprise. And so I think it's going to be a challenge of how do you marry those two things where you are historically an internationalist, but you're worried about this significant uh, challenge from, the, from China. I would... As I said, there may be ways in which the Chinese just don't budge or which they engage in that arms race or, you know, make things difficult and it's whack-a-mole or they build their own walls in which you end up there. But um, I don't think that the initial impetus of a, of a, a administration that's different from the current one would be to say, oh, okay, we're going back to the 14th century. We're building a castle, a moat. We're pulling up all stakes uh, with, with China as, their, as our first move. I think there would be efforts to try something else first. All right, thanks for, thanks for a gracious response to that digression into crystal ball gazing. Let's get back to principled interdependence. Now, Jinhee Lee writes, I appreciate the idea of principled interdependence. For that purpose, as you highlighted the importance of setting standards of interaction. The challenge is for the two countries to set agreeable standards. Are you suggesting more patience on the U.S. side and expect the gradual emergence of shared values or standards? If so, how do we encourage the American public to have more patience? For example, the difference in democratic values regarding censorship, uh, academic freedom, or even the necessary quality check on products, even face masks. Sure, sure. Um, I, I, um, I think this is probably where I differ from uh, the original policy that I call patient integration or unconditional interdependence. I think to some extent we ought to have an ongoing conversation with the Chinese and everybody else about uh, the way the world is run, what type of world we want uh, and how to achieve it and how we might be able to achieve that by having uh, be deeply tied with each other. But I think we also need to recognize that the current Chinese regime led by Xi Jinping is an inherently deeply illiberal regime. And under Xi Jinping, China is pursuing goals and values, which are inconsistent with a lot of the values that we want, or at least that 
I personally value uh, with, with regard to open economies, uh, open intellectual pursuits, uh, and, and things like that. And so to some extent, it's going to be about having a conversation with the Chinese, but the standards that we come up with aren't simply going to be dependent on having a successful conversation with the Chinese and persuading them that our values and standards are the right ones. It's going to be about deciding what the world that we want, and then with as many like-minded countries and stakeholders as possible pursuing it. And to the extent that which we can build mechanisms and bridges with the Chinese that allow us to continue having China involved in the rest of the world while mitigating some of those risks, then I think we ought to. But again, it's not unconditional, and I think it's not as patient as perhaps this questioner would, would like it to be. It could end up being uh, a way in which we pull up safe. China's idea of internet sovereignty is really antithetical to the idea of an open and free internet. And if they are going to not only close off the Chinese internet and create a second alternative, but promote that around the rest of the world, it's going to be really difficult uh, and uh, to have a relationship with them. Uh, I think, you know, China, there are now thousands of Chinese officials and business people using Twitter. Should we think that no matter what, no matter what the Chinese are saying, no matter what they're doing, that they should always have access to Western social media? I think it's a reasonable question to ask. We can suggest that they do, but if they abuse that uh, and they undercut the standards of that system, then I think we ought to think long and hard uh, about that. And so there's as patient as I want to be, I also think that we need to, to remember that we're trying to promote a certain type of world in a, in, at a time in which the Chinese don't seem to be as accepting of that. And, and that's why we're in the, the fix that we're in. Well, this segues nicely into another question from an anonymous attendee. Um, uh, an, uh, an incoherent element in the presentation is the term principles. These are only wishful from the US side, but the Chinese side may even reject or refuse them. How do you push the Chinese to abide by these? Well, the questioner wrote these principles, but I'm gonna rephrase it. How do you push the Chinese to abide by your principles? Hmm, well, um, I guess my view is a lot of my principles that I like, I think are good for China. And I think there are a lot of people in China who would agree with me. A lot of those people in China who agree with me used to be in power. They used to be top leaders in the Chinese government and communist party and throughout their bureaucracy. And a lot of those folks have been pushed aside. A lot of those folks are in Chinese universities and research institutions and companies. So part of the conversation that we're going to be having isn't just with an expectation that everyone in China disagrees with these, but trying to generate an additional conversation within China about these. I don't think that just as there's not a consensus in Washington that the U.S. ought to uh, engage in Cold War II against China, there's not a consensus in China that the U.S. is its uh, enemy for life. Uh, and so part of this is about having that conversation in China or, or encouraging it or, and, and recognizing that it, it exists. Um, and then, you know, the extent to which we persuade people, we will we'll see where that goes. But also it's about creating systems that even if Chinese aren't persuaded, uh, that we still protect ourselves. And also we create costs to the Chinese uh, if they try to undercut these values. So, um, I think it's multidimensional. Uh, I realize that it's normative, um, but I think actually uh, foreign uh, policies are always normative. I'm just being upfront about it. 
Sounds, sounds a bit like a peaceful evolutionist. I think uh, spiritual pollution is a great idea, and I want to pollute them as much as they want to pollute us. Thanks, Scott. Kerry Brogan asks, I think many of us, or comments, many of us here are likely on the same page as you in terms of working towards a principle of independence. But to your point, it's conditional on effective risk mitigation, risk of technology theft, of national security, etc. You said if we cannot mitigate risk, we should not engage in principled interdependence. The problem is we don't have a good record, a good track record of mitigating these risks. Anyone who's read the Huawei indictment will understand how challenging this is. That indictment alone reveals how almost every attempt to mitigate those risks were superseded on the Chinese side. Meanwhile, in the public arena, China denies these att attempts even against clear evidence. This points to the fact that, unfortunately, risk mitigation is extremely challenging. Do you think it's possible to really implement an, an effective approach to risk mitigation? What would the administration need to do to make that happen? Um, that's a great question. It's a, it's a great point. I would say, I guess I would have a little bit more uh, different verdict about our efforts to mitigate risk so far. Certainly there's been lots of theft, lots of leakage, but that on balance, the U.S. still leads China in almost every technology, uh, including in AI, uh, despite the fact that we've lost all that stuff um, and that there's been this technology diffusion, licit or illicit, um, and that certainly uh, the U.S. Uh, had, but I think that I, I agree with that indictment, with what he says about that indictment, and you know, my, I guess my view is is that the U.S. could do a much better job of governance. Uh, we've spent a few decades attacking the idea of government and uh, the civil service and, uh, uh, you know, reducing the amount of funding available, training, uh, and there's just a lot to do. Uh, the U.S. Uh, pre-1945 uh, had very few experts on Russia and the Soviet Union. It's a new challenge. We developed a lot of capacity to deal with that new challenge. I think we need to, even though we've got lots of great experts uh, that, that Michael and Harvard's training uh, and elsewhere around the country, we still need to develop additional capacity about China and about this world that we're in. So I think, I guess my, where I would, I would say, I think the scorecard that I keep gives the U.S. a little bit more credit than the questioner. And I guess I have a little bit more faith that we can do a better job of, of mitigating those risks, particularly when we make them front and center uh, in a way that we haven't because, you know, of 9-11 of and the focus on the, on the war on terrorism, et cetera. Uh, let's uh, flip back to the, the, the last question, but one about principles. Jed Schwartz follows up with a question. Can you describe how the contents of those principles have been changing? If they, if they have been changing. Oh, geez, that's going to require me to sort of open up my uh, uh, own life and talk about how my own principles have changed. I, would, I, I guess uh, certainly if you just look at the U.S., uh, you would see that certainly over different administrations, they advocate different things. Uh, and certainly the Trump administration uh, is, is different uh, in many ways from, from previous ones. Um, and, you know, liberals and conservatives, the whole range, libertarians have, have different values and so different choices. Um, 
I think I've been trying to be pretty open about where I think I stand. I think the liberal international order has uh, been uh, a benefit to the United States. Uh, and I'm not trying to suggest that we just be pro liberal with a big L or conservative, you know, in terms of American domestic politics. But I think broadly speaking, uh, a Big Ten approach to these values would serve the U.S. And I think uh, it's not just, I, I just don't think international relations is about a contest for raw power, regardless of what you do domestically, uh, which I, I think uh, encapsulates a lot of the views about uh, decoupling and certain elements of, of current American foreign policy. Uh, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and, and raise a question uh, that comes to us from uh, Mingyer, our colleague, uh, my colleague at Boston University, and also a, a PIP, a, a public intellectual program participant, who, uh, who actually I think wants, wants to, uh, to uh, push you a little bit uh, about the Kennedy mode of analysis. Uh, she writes, Scott, really like the report on uneven tech development in China. Could you apply a similar framework to decoupling? Sectors that are easy to decouple with minimal damage, sectors impossible to decouple, sectors that have to be discovered but costly to both countries or one not the other, and, and, and frame an analysis in those terms. Another pipper comes up with a great idea. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Min, we'll get right on it. Uh, I think that's that's really important uh, suggestion, a very good idea. What I was trying to get at in the examples that were in my talk is that even in really difficult, hard to address areas that are highly sensitive, we ought to at least be open to the possibility that we might be able to mitigate those risks sufficiently or that the costs, even if we can't mitigate the risks, still are outweighed by the overall benefits. That's why I talked about semiconductors, because I still think even with China spending 150 to 200 billion uh, on semiconductors and fabs and uh, hiring away enormous number of researchers and doing everything they can above board and below board to develop their industry, um, a global semiconductor industry is still beneficial to the United States. And having American companies be able to sell to China is still beneficial. Now, there may going to be some types of chips that you shouldn't sell, some types of end users who shouldn't get access to these chips. And it may be that China's civil military integration system makes it impossible to say I'm, oh, that you can sell to one end user in China and keep it from another end user in China or from one okay use to one other. And then you may not be able to do that. But I think we need to go through that type of exercise in a rigorous way. And I really appreciate the framework that you've uh, suggested to do that. Um, let's return to a different standard. Thomas Remington asks the question, Matthew Pottinger recently commented that China's already done a lot of decoupling. Uh, he's not the only person who pointed that out, but he's one who's pointed out most recently, for example, making it much harder for US journalists to report from China. Uh, how would you suggest redressing the specific imbalance in media and research access? Sure, a that's a great near, question. Near and dear to colleagues at the Fairbanks Center who are really facing that challenge across a whole range of domains of our, of our own work. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is a great point. And um, I don't think that there's a super, uh, 
I guess the the first point that the that's raised, and I think it goes even beyond what Matt Pottinger uh, suggested in that quote, and that I've heard from him in person, uh, is that there's places in which the U.S. and China have not ever been coupled uh, because the Chinese didn't allow it. Right? China did not allow the internet to be connected to our internet. Chinese financial system is uncoupled from the worlds are only lightly connected. Um, and uh, Chinese university systems, even though there's those educational exchanges and deep research, you know, um, it's, it's unlikely that I would be hired to be uh, the um, core advisor to lots of Chinese undergraduate students in, in politics. Uh, and that they would adopt my curriculum. And maybe my curriculum stinks, but nevertheless, you get the point. So there's lots of areas where the Chinese never allowed coupling in the first place because of their worries. So I would agree with that. And so I think it goes beyond things that they've done recently to reduce engagement, like pun out journalists um, and, 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 and uh, make research, make access to archives or other things much more difficult. Um, I guess it comes down, I guess the question comes down to, um, can we come up with a way of interacting with the Chinese that still promotes our principles, even when the Chinese don't want to put their best foot forward in a way that would, would promote them? So a question with regard to the journalists is, um, yes, there are a bunch of Chinese journalists who are in the United States who may not be doing purely journalistic work, if you know what I mean. Um, but how important is that relative to the benefits that the U.S. gets from having hundreds of our reporters on the ground in China being able to do, res uh, to do reporting and write stories on very difficult issues from Xinjiang to Hong Kong to leadership succession issues to China-North Korea relations, even with all the restrictions that do exist? Uh, and are there ways in which we can try to expand the level of access for reporters, Amer Western reporters in China, uh, without going through the type of tit for tat that we're now engaged in? And I don't think there's an easy answer to that. Uh, certainly, there was a lot of criticism in previous administrations for being uh, too weak on China in, on the issue of journalists. And I think this administration in particular has decided, you know, they're finally going to push back where others didn't. And look where we get. Uh, are we, is the U.S. better off because there are 60 less Chinese journalists slash intelligence officers in the U.S. and we've lost the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and, uh, and, uh, and others and more to come perhaps? I don't know. I, don't, I think the balance is, is I, I think the U.S. Uh, is, is basically lost on balance in that. So I'm not sure exactly how to solve that. In terms of educational exchanges, um, out in, in the university setting, uh, it, it's, it's a big risk. I, I understand. Uh, when I was a professor at Indiana University, uh, I was the first uh, professor to open a research center in Beijing and uh, then tried to encourage Indiana University to follow. And we opened a university office and I was the first academic director of, of that center. And we thought there could be lots of benefits to, the, to Indiana, not just from greater tuition and, and donors, you know, alumni, but from research, collaboration, education. Some of it worked out, some of it 
it didn't. I think uh, many universities from Harvard, Columbia, Michigan, everyone is struggling with that challenge. But I don't think the idea is just, let's just pull up stakes. I can't imagine what our universities would be like if, if uh, they weren't global the way they've become. So no easy solution to these, but I, I'm not ready to throw in the towel. Scott, we had, so one, one indication that you're no longer a professor is that when we ask you to speak for 30 to 35 minutes, you actually do speak for 30 to 35 minutes. Uh, we had, we had, it was not how academics operate. We had, we had scheduled tentatively two hours for this session. I've got a couple of open questions, uh, but I, but I think we're, we're, we're starting to maybe try the limits of the limits of your uh, energy. So if you don't mind, I, I, this is mainly to the group. I'll ask uh, a few more questions, the ones I've got now, but we may end up wrapping up a little bit early. So if you do have a, uh, a, a question you're dying to ask, send it to, send it to us now using the Q&A function because we may not go all the way through till, till four o'clock. Um, so let me uh, uh, ask um, uh, one sort of complicated question that I'm, I'm not sure I totally uh, uh, have figured out, but Jed, Jed Schwartz writes, what are the effects of monopolization? And I think by that he means uh, concentration of industries in the United States, if associated with interdependency. So what are the effects of that on competition and the presence or absence of price gouging through control of, of pricing market mechanisms? Uh, um, I guess what, what I what I'm hearing from from his question, and he can follow up by just typing and, and correcting me if I'm wrong, uh, has to do with with sort of two issues. One is about competition policy um, and fair competition. Um, the other is about um, having all your eggs in one basket and and having stuff in 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 one place that, that may be create vulnerabilities. Uh, I think the, the first uh, is, um, I mean, I, I believe I, and, and maybe the answer for, for the two is actually similar. Uh, I think we're uh, competition amongst many actors, uh, I think is gets you better products and services uh, and uh, having uh, sources of supply and markets that are diverse. Uh, also helps you, uh, both economically in terms of efficiencies, but also in terms of resilience for, for those industries. So I think if you look at industries where there's low concentration, that is if you look at the top 10 firms and their market share uh, versus industries uh, where there's high concentration, those sectors with relatively low concentration tend to be pretty enduring and, and relatively strong. Now, different industries have different dynamics, and so you're never going to get the the oil industry, for example, to look the way the apparel industry does, for example. But nevertheless, there's benefits to diversity, decentralization uh, that I think are consistent with my idea of principled interdependence uh, and, and in, in which the benefits are, are, I think, also good with having a, a, a middle class that, that's stronger um, and where America is more secure. I, I understand that there's risks as well, but uh, I, I think we're on the same wavelengths. And if I've gotten this totally wrong, uh, just 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 let us know. All right. Well, let's let's close with two with two last big questions. Um, uh, the first one from Jinhee Lee: Would you make your proposal more closely related to the current pandemic and the lesson we can have from this sobering example? 
uh, decoupling supporters must see what mistakes we've made in our response to the pandemic. Um, unless, the, the solution to this pandemic is not decoupling or isolating each other, but more proactive, engaged, and quicker cooperation in response to the virus between the two countries or through the WHO, et cetera. I'm struck by the opposite lessons or political rhetoric that the people in the two camps, which he's labeled decouplers or she's labeled decouplers and couplers, are coming up with at the fake of this failed first response of the US to the virus that moves around the world by not engaging with China and the rest of the world earlier. Sure. So I guess, I guess the question is really to, to expand on COVID-19 uh, as a case and the lessons for uh, productive, uh, productive engagement, uh, productive sure, independence. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, um, you know, in um, 2002, 2003, the U.S. really expanded the presence of uh, CDC personnel, Center for Disease Control and Prevention in China, uh, other parts of the U.S. government as well, and began uh, in response to SARS, right, in, in the wake of SARS, uh, and ex ex established ex really extensive interaction and collaboration uh, in China, the ability of U.S. officials to travel around China to do, uh, to collect information, interact with, with colleagues, and they had a pretty constructive relationship. In addition, uh, the United States developed uh, offices within the National Security Council uh, to uh, prepare for pandemics and coordinate the preparation across the federal government and between the federal and state government and local governments. Both of those efforts have withered over the last several years. The U.S. has reduced the presence of CDC officials in China, and uh, this office within the National Security Council was eliminated in 2018. Uh, in addition, uh, and so we had that type of collaboration and preparedness underway that involved the Chinese. And for whatever reason, uh, we decided it was too costly, uh, the priorities, uh, and, it, and it withered. So I think uh, we're paying the costs of, of that insufficient protection of those bridges that were built. Um, in addition, uh, the, the, the focus on supply chains, I think is, I, I do understand that, and that you don't wanna have to, to source, you know, 70, 80% of the ingredients and pharmaceuticals from one country and from China and one that's a strategic competitor. But you can't, in 10 minutes, just say, you know what, we're gonna build domestic capacity. There is a reason that the capacity isn't in the United States. And so I can see having more diverse sources and not just putting your eggs in one Chinese basket, but having them in different parts of the United States and Europe, Canada, Central Europe, and Africa, Latin America. But to bring it all home uh, in one foul swoop seems to be entirely uh, unlikely impossible. And I think damaging, as the previous question said, you know, if you had all of that in one place, that generates new kinds of risks. Um, I do think that uh, there's one issue, issue in particular that's going to be a challenge has to do with transparency. Um, and I think uh, there's been a decrease in China's willingness to be transparent or limits to how transparent they're willing to be. Uh, and, I th and I think that those restrictions and limits uh, undercut those who advocate deep collaboration with the Chinese in, a, in preparing for and addressing pandemics uh, need. 
in the United States because they obviously face criticism back in the Congress uh, and by others who say, you know, the Chinese have been lying, they haven't been honest with you. And so China still needs to be even more forthcoming than it has been. Uh, and I do think there's some difference between what they did in, under SARS and, and now. Uh, but nevertheless, there's still uh, those type of restrictions, which the U.S., uh, which I think is a, uh, which is corrosive of building uh, the, the relationship. So uh, to address uh, pandemics now and, and to prepare for, for future ones. And I think the uh, uh, spiraling out of control of the broader relationship is going to make it even less likely that we're ready for the next pandemic. And we know there will be future pandemics. Scott, if you don't mind, I had said one more question, but a, such a great question just came in that I want to ask you that one as well. I hope that's okay. Of course. Jian um, Xu asks, how would you evaluate the potentials of transnational anti-corruption enforcement initiatives, such as the FCPA and the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention, to address problems of unfair competition and other illegal practices? I would, if you don't mind, Jen, she reframe the question to ask, to what extent can transnational anti-corruption initiatives serve as a vehicle for uh, the, the pursuit of principled interdependence? Um, this is, uh, is a great question. I appreciate it. And um, I, I'm um, happy to answer. And if there's more questions, stay on or have people follow up. Uh, at CSIS, we've been trying to limit our events because people just don't want to look at this mug very long. Uh, they get, get tired of it, and, and it's, it's much better to see, see me in, in, in writing or <laughs> other ways at a distance. Um, uh, one of the challenges of, 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 the, of cha dealing with corruption internationally is that we have a very thin global governance regime to deal with it. You've got uh, U.S. laws, FCPA. Uh, other countries have different laws. Uh, you do have organizations like Transparency International that have the anti-corruption, the corruption index. Uh, you have advocates of good governance around the world. You also have uh, international uh, law enforcement uh, to 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 deal with uh, cases, but you don't have anything in to deal with corruption like you do, say, in trade like with, uh, you know, countervailing duties, subsidies, like a WTO type organization. I'm not saying that you necessarily need to, but there needs to be some, something built further upon what we have already uh, to deal with corruption rather than the very patchwork uh, system that we have right now. Uh, and if it's going to deal with corruption uh, effectively, uh, then it's gonna have to deal with issues of tax havens. Um, I don't know if anybody had a chance to watch one of my favorite movies last year. Uh, I hope all of you, you know, Meryl Streep is a very good actress, and I hope everyone watched Laundromat. You're like, what? Why is Laundromat coming up in a uh, talk on, on China? I thought it, it was about American Factory and, and these other movies that were, that were so great. But go watch Laundromat. Uh, Laundromat is about the Panama Papers. Uh, and if you know anything about the Panama Papers, uh, go spend some time looking at them. You will see that there are some Chinese, that the Panama Papers is all about tax havens, right? It's all about folks who put money in Caribbean countries or Panama or whatever. And um, the uh, Borshi Lai issue comes up in the movie. And there's 15 minutes on Borshi Lai 
and and his his wife and the the the, uh, the British businessman who they got entangled with and, and who was killed. Um, and so, uh, but that all goes back to tax havens. And so, uh, part of the development of of a, of a more robust effort to deal with corruption, whether it's bilaterally or globally, is going to be about addressing tax havens. Uh, and, I, and so this is just my own personal, I'm not, I'm not an expert in uh, this area. Um, but from, from what I understand, one of the big weaknesses of dealing with, with corruption are, have to do with tax havens. So go watch that movie. All right. We have our, we have our homework. Uh, it's, good, it's, good to have, it's good to assign homework. Um, a last question, and it's a doozy. And it's going to ask you to stretch, um, but that's what we're here for. Uh, an anonymous attendee asks, how would you make, how would you make, I meant metaphorically, but we should all do a little Tai Chi when these sessions get too long. Yes. How would you make a political argument to American voters for principled interdependence? And how will the CCP respond to this within Chinese domestic politics? I think it's a great question. Uh, and I uh, in- appreciate the invitation to stretch physically and metaphorically. I think we all need to think about the the ideas when we're working on them, whether it's in academia or think tanks, um, how they would translate into a political environment. And I think there's a lot of skepticism in the United States about being able to have any sort of relationship with China that protects our economy, values national security, uh, and public health. So so I I think part of it uh, is about identifying the real benefits that have come from the relationship in these areas, being as honest as you can about the real risks. Uh, and I think one of the challenges of defenders of engagement is that they've been unwilling to admit the risks or that they say those risks are so small and the benefits so large that we ought not to worry about them. And so I think principled interdependence has a, a greater chance of being politically viable if we say, actually, yeah, there are, there are real risks. Uh, censorship, uh, or value, you know, uh, is a is a problem. Uh, products that have that are unsafe. Um, uh, dealing with pandemics, uh, problems of uh, you know that these are real issues that we that we really do have to that are hurting us and hurting certain segments of the United States and uh, are are the type of world that we want. So I think being honest about those risks. Uh, being accurate about them, uh, not overstating them, but being being open about them helps. Uh, I think also coming up with improvements, although I think the questions and the conversation indicate that effectively mitigating these risks is really hard. Uh, it's not something that one does in a day. It doesn't fit on the back of a bumper sticker. I don't think I'm going to see principled interdependence on the back of anyone's car or minivan soon. Uh, but uh, it uh, but I think that is w- the, what you, the real work that you need to do. And I think lastly, uh, as I said, there's lots of ways in which, in which uh, U.S. society has been hurting uh, because we have a weakened middle class, because our democratic institutions haven't been maintained the way they could be. Uh, and a lot of those things are um, recognized in a domestic political conversation, but we sort of divide our brain and engage in cognitive dissonance dissonance when we criticize the Chinese for, say, stealing all American jobs, but on the other hand, recognize that actually, you know, we spent three to four trillion on the war in the the Middle East. We gave tax cuts to certain folks who 
uh, ended up benefiting relative to the middle class. You look at the way taxes are with regard to capital gains versus uh, wage income. You can see a lot of different ways in which there's been a re-slanting of, of, of wealth income and which has affected jobs, which we recognize on the other side of our brain. And so I think about having those conversations all together will help. And so not thinking about t talking about our interaction or relationship with China simply as a foreign policy issue. Um, and so having those conversations all together, I, th I think will help. But yes, it's, I, I recognize uh, alarmism, simplicity it, in the context of a broader um, fearful landscape is easier to sell than one that sounds like it's about nuances and, and things like that. And um, I, I think it, then it requires actually a little bit more faith in our system, a little bit more optimism, uh, and not about only playing defense, but about playing offense and thinking about the opportunities that we have, not just the fears that face us. Thanks, Scott. Until, until you made that last caveat, I was about to jump in and say, spoken like someone with no political future whatsoever. Uh, that, that kind of an explanation is, uh, won't, won't work, however, however persuasive it is to all of us. Uh, Scott, I think it's time to, uh, to give you a break. Thank, uh, thank you very much, Scott Kennedy, for, uh, uh, as always, a stimulating and thought-provoking uh, session on a really important topic. Thank you to the over 150 participants who were here for some or all of this session. Um, I hope you all uh, stay well and stay healthy, stay engaged with uh, the work of the Fairbanks Center and other research entities like CSIS that are working on uh, uh, figuring out the puzzle of U.S.-China relations. And I look forward, Scott, to uh, welcoming you back to the Fairbanks Center in person uh, to hear the next, the next project just as soon as possible. Thanks very much, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Really appreciate it.